I felt at more at peace with that story than I ever had in my entire life. And I'd been thinking about it since I was five years old. Yeah, you know, thinking about the electric chair, thinking about horror, thinking about, you know, my father being orphaned, you know, all of it. So it was hard for me to go back to the story and use it in the Cone film. But I needed to. It was urgent and I could contribute something that nobody else could. I had to do it. You're listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Ivy Mirapol is a documentary filmmaker whose emotionally and politically charged films explore social and cultural injustice from the inside out. Her work on TV and film spans an array of timely subject matter from the nuclear power industry to the American political system. But what distinguishes her work is her disarming refusal to judge the characters in her films as either heroes or villains, an approach Ivy describes as an aggressive pursuit of empathy. That empathy infuses every scene of her latest film, Bully, Coward, Victim, the story of Roy Cohn, which recently premiered at the New York Film Festival. Combining archival footage with original reporting, the HBO film explores the complicated, controversial, and enduring legacy of Cohn, the closeted, right-wing political attack dog who was an early mentor to Donald Trump. Cohn launched his notorious career as the young prosecutor who convicted Ivy's grandparents, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, of spying for the Soviet Union at the height of the Red Scare. Cohn succeeded in his quest to send both of them to the electric chair, leaving her father and his younger brother orphaned. Ivy asks big questions in all her films without offering up absolute answers. In her stunning debut film, Heir to an Execution, she seeks a more complete understanding of her grandparents' choices. In Indian Point, she offers a complex and nuanced portrait of a nuclear power plant on the outskirts of New York City. And in Bully, Coward, Victim, she challenges her own assumptions about Cohn and examines the psychological and social forces that shaped him. What resonates most in Ivy's body of work is her courage, and her willingness to dwell in the ambiguity of human experience. Here is my conversation with Ivy Mirapol. You know, I like to begin these conversations often by understanding the background of the people I'm talking to, um, and specifically to get a sense of uh, their childhood, who you were as a kid, what your creative energy is, and in your particular case, (laughs) would love to talk a little bit about the backdrop of your father's story as well as your grandparents' story. So of course. You, can, you can dive in in any way you feel is right. Sure. My family are all from the New York City area, but I grew up in a pretty small town called Wilbraham in western Massachusetts. Uh, very small, fairly conservative, kind of suburban, rural community, um, and we really stood out. I went to a, an alternative private community. It was called Community Day School that was run by my parents and their friend, their hippie friends. Um, oh, wow. Uh, one wow. of these very Sort of like small, a free school? Exactly. Um, oh, and they rented uh-huh. a floor at an old Baptist church in downtown Springfield, and, and a handful of kids got to have this very freewheeling <laughs> education. You know, my, I also, to back up, I have a younger brother who's adopted, and he is half black. He's uh, African-American. and So we had a 
uh, interracial family. We're Jewish, not to mention the fact that my grandparents also were Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. So an unusual family, let's put it that way. But in Mm -hmm. this little world that they created in this school, we weren't strange. But then the school didn't continue. And so my brother and I wound up in the public school system in uh, Western Mass in Wilbraham, which was very white, very conservative. So I think that was hard for us um, at first. And I learned to kind of adapt and hide a Mm. lot of our family history. Mm. And it really wasn't until college when I went to Sarah Lawrence that I suddenly was in this environment again where, you know, people were interested in me and welcoming and they were interested in me because of this. So it's this kind of kind of this other side of the coin, which is, are you interested in me because of who I am or because of my history? Right. So that interim period between Community Day School and Sarah Lawrence, the hiding period that you talk about, was there any way of finding creative expression even privately, a a diary, a journal, uh, those wonderful shots of you in the home movies as already being a documentarian when you were seven, I guess. You look seven. I don't know how old you are. But was there some outlet for you even if it was kept private? Yes. I mean, among my family and the family friends, you know, kind of our tribe um, who were not the kids and families that I knew through school. We actually would put on plays. Um, I would write the plays, and I was the director. I had to be the mm-hmm. director, and I would get everyone mm-hmm. together in our garage, and I would order everyone around. And I was always—I would always write. I did have a diary where I would vent about, you know, all sorts of things, and even if it was just as banal as talking about, you know, the boys I was interested in or something like that. But I—I right. I definitely was always writing. And what did you study at Sarah Lawrence? I ranged all over. I mean, I I fancied myself a fiction writer. I really loved um, taking fiction workshops. But I also, I mean, I was interested in sociology and political philosophy. Did you study film at all? Funny enough, I did not study film. Mm -hmm. But do you remember what attracted you about film, of why you wanted to maybe switch from being a novelist to being a, a filmmaker, documentarian? Well, I made Heir to an Execution, which was my first film. Because the subject dictated the medium. And then I fell in love with the medium. I never mm-hmm. thought I'm going to be a documentary filmmaker. I just, mm-hmm. it just didn't occur to me. But the story of my grandparents and my, what had happened to my father and my uncle started really weighing on me. And I felt it actually intruding in my other work um, or coming up in my other work. And I, I have a very specific example of that if you want me to talk about that. Um, yeah, please do. I was working for a Florida congressman, a wonderful guy named Harry Johnston, and we had a constituent who had been the subject of testing of LSD. Our our government used to test our soldiers without telling them with LSD in the early 1950s, I think that was. His name's James Stanley. He was a young master sergeant in the Army, and he had volunteered to what he thought was to test protective clothing. Um, and he had gone to Edgewood Arsenal, where they do a lot of these tests in Maryland. But they actually were dosing, and this is well known now. I mean, there's been films made about it, and it's been documented. I was fascinated by the story, and I and I felt, in retrospect, now I understand why, because it's this idea that this guy who was who believed he was such a patriot, he wanted to serve his country, his life was destroyed because he was tested with LSD, never told, so he thought he went crazy. It affected him. It affected his marriage. He beha- All this erratic behavior got thrown out of the army. They never told him, 
what they had done to him until many, many years later when he's living this pretty sad life as a prison guard and just not ever thinking that he had gone crazy. And then he gets a letter from Senator Kennedy's committee who had discovered this these tests had occurred and who were sending letters saying you were the you know you were a victim and blah 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 and you know contact us so i got really caught up in this guy's case and i cared about him and i wrote this private bill and i pushed and i pushed and we we won we got him some money and i felt wow. very good about the and but i also so then i wanted to write a screenplay about him right so i leave right. congress one of my first ideas to write a screenplay is about james stanley and i kept real i started to realize that all of these stories I was pursuing were really my way of talking about someone who is treated so horribly by our government and has no real recourse. Because what was amazing about James Stanley is when I called him to tell him we had won, all he could say to me was, well, that's wonderful, Ivy. I'm really glad to hear that. But all I ever really wanted was an apology. Hmm. And that just like was so heartbreaking to me. And I thought, you know, so much of what my family has struggled with and what we always have felt is, is just this idea who do you who do you who can you be mad at who can you focus your anger at right. and how do you how do you handle that and how do you, what do you do with it so i started to realize that that's the story that i needed to tell eventually to then move on exactly. and do other things so that's really yeah. what happened and i and because i thought of myself as a writer i thought well i'm going to write something but that it start, I started to think, you know what, all these people I'm starting to talk to who knew my grandparents, I want people to hear that, see them telling their stories. I don't want it to be so filtered through me. I love listening to them. Why? So why shouldn't other people want, you know, be denied yeah. getting to see their faces, hear their stories directly? And I also knew there was all this beautiful archival footage out there that hadn't really been used. I knew that footage, especially of my father, my uncle, and their little matching coats and going in and out of Sing Sing is so powerful and I wanted to use it. I wanted to do something with it. So that's how it started. And then I was hooked because documentaries bring all of my interests and I think abilities together in one place. Did you have any background in filmmaking? I mean, you directed Air to an Execution. Did you just kind of arrive on set one day and, <laughs> and, uh, and well, I mean, it, yeah, no, I mean, I actually have a great interest in how we know things from making them. So I'm curious about that for you. Yeah, well, that is kind of what happened. I mean, I, I had no experience. So you jump in the deep end. I jumped in the deep swim. end. So what I, yes, exactly. What I did was I landed an early meeting with Sheila Nevins, the notorious head of HBO documentary films for years. She's only recently retired. And she's formidable. She's intimidating. But we had this friend who was a filmmaker, a family friend who's a filmmaker who I'd started just saying, oh, you know, I'm thinking about a documentary. She's, oh, you have to meet Sheila. So somehow I go right to the top. But anyway, it was a really interesting meeting because when I first walked in, she was not particularly interested in talking to me. And then once I started talking about my connection to the story, she started crying. And mm. she said one of her earliest memories was about being in Union Square with her mother holding a sign, please don't kill the Rosenbergs. Wow. And so it touched her deeply, and, um, and she became immediately interested. Yet, she said, well, you've never directed a film before, so let's find a good director for you. You can be the associate producer. And somehow I knew enough to know that this telling me I'm going to be associate producer was brushing me aside and them taking the story from me. So I said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not as tempting as it was to someone to have 
the head of HBO documentary offering me this deal really in the in the room, I said, no, I'm not. And she said, OK, well, your alternative is start shooting and show me what you got. And so I went out and bought a prosumer camera, like really crap. I mean, this is mini DV and just really small camera. I don't know anything about shooting. I mean, I'm not. And I watch that film now and I'm a bit horrified by the fact that there's a shot, you know, of my dad with a plant growing out of the back of his head, that kind of thing, <laughs> which I just, you know, I didn't it, it know. It just a, humanizes it all, you, which is a theme I want to yes. trace in this conversation anyway. Yeah. I think it's an amazing film, by the way. Thank you. So I shot a lot, a bunch of just conversations with my father and I had him talking directly through the camera to me because I felt that I just had this feeling that that would be powerful for the audience to feel that he was talking to them through me. And then I interviewed um, a couple of people like um, Emily All Emily and David Allman, who were very active in the movement to, to save them. And they had almost adopted my father, my uncle, and they tell that story. Right. And then I, you know, I, I brought it to Sheila. I really still didn't know. I mean, I was so just kind of flying by the seat of my pants, but I was excited by it. And I was excited because I was, the camera was allowing me to ask my father questions I'd never asked him. It was giving me this incredible opportunity because I was always so careful. I don't want to upset him, but the camera mm. made it okay. There was a reason to be doing it, asking him those questions. So I showed her what we got and she got excited and she said, all right, I'm going to partner you with a production company. You're going to meet these producers that I work with all the time. And I ended up with a company called Blowback Productions. So that's how it began. And it was still fairly piecemeal. I still had to keep proving myself. But eventually she's like, okay, you're the director. <laughs> so, you know, it was my, I had to own this film. I wonder if we could pause just sure. for a second and just for, you know, listeners to get a sense of the background of your dad's story and your grandparents' story, just if you could outline it a little bit so that we can Absolutely. bring the listeners along. Yes, because it's a story that not everybody knows, of course. Um, in brief. Dateline Sing Sing, June 19th, 1953. Someone had passed America's atomic bomb secrets to Russia. This was an undisputed fact that the whole world knew. My father's parents were Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Who were accused by the U.S. government of stealing the secret of the atom bomb and giving it to the Soviet Union. Found the pair guilty as charged and sentenced them to death in the electric chair to pay for their crime of treason. My grandfather Julius was arrested first. My father was then seven years old. And my uncle a few years younger. And then soon after, my grandmother was arrested and they were tried and they were convicted on conspiracy to commit espionage, which is quite something to have eventually been executed for just a conspiracy to commit espionage. But this was during the Red Scare. My grandparents were communists. They were not ashamed of calling themselves communists. They were proud and they were tried, they were convicted and they spent two years on death row in Sing Sing and then they were actually executed on June 19, 1953. And the reason our name is Mirapol is because um, no one in the family would take in. My father and my uncle, so Abel and Ann Mirapol were complete strangers to the family, but it was all over the papers at the time. My husband and I had discussed the thing, and we had known about the children, although we did not know the parents, but we knew Mr. Block. The Rosenberg boys are orphaned, and. They said, we want to take them in.
I want to focus on three of your projects. Sure. Um, Erdogan Execution, Indian Point, and the one that's just come out, Bully Coward Victim. And to preface it by saying that what I, I really love about your work is that you ask big, huge questions. Mm-hmm. But like sort of great drama, and I'm a student of the theater, you don't attempt to answer those questions so much as you offer us multiple points of view. And most importantly, you're not afraid to dwell in ambiguity. And as a student of the theater, I learned that very early, Mm -hmm. that great drama is about asking huge questions and addressing them, but also relaying in very clear ways the ambiguity of human experience. And that, I think, is such a powerful strength of your film. So I want to explore some of that. And and I have some other big questions for you, too. Yeah. So let's start with Heir to an Execution. You've already started to describe the film and why you made it, but maybe add a little bit of color to that for the listeners. One of the things I love about documentary and what I work hard to achieve is the pursuit of new information and surprising material and um, an understanding beyond what I've read or what I've heard already. So I think with aired in execution, I grew up with two sides of a story, you know, that my grandparents, when I was growing up, are totally innocent, complete martyrs, heroes beyond belief, you know, who in the world is that strong? And that's how it kind of was presented to me. And then on the other hand, terrible people, traitors, sell out their country, don't care about their children, would rather die to make make a big point and cared more about the Communist Party and turned a blind eye to the Soviet Union, to turn a blind eye to Stalin, uh, all of that. You know, so it's pure good or pure evil. That's right. who that's how they right. existed in my mind. And I was not satisfied with that. I wanted to humanize them. I wanted to bring, I would always say, I want to bring them down to earth. They're not pure martyrs and Mm. they're not pure evil. Nobody is. Mm. So I, you know, to me, that's when what you're getting at too is the essence of real good storytelling. It's somewhere in there. It's it's not one or the other. Um, And so for me, it was very scary to pursue that though um, because I was kind of like, what am I going to find out? So I knew that the government has said, okay, Julius was doing something, but Ethel Mm -hmm. didn't have a code name, so she was innocent. Mm -hmm. So it still, it had complicated things already for us and for my family, but it still wasn't the same as having friends of theirs, comrades of theirs, actually say, (laughs) yeah, they were, he was trying to do it, or they were, I mean, who, you know, but Ethel didn't actively pursue anything. So that was... But to understand why they might have and who they were and what they, you know, what they cared about and and to try to redeem the idea of what it meant to be a communist at that time and that that actually that it meant that they were progressives. They were the only, you know, people fighting for a fair wage and eight hour workday and civil rights for African-Americans. And I mean, that was the party that was doing it. Nobody else was. And. I needed to know that. And then I also wanted to know, you know, that ultimately, I mean, that one of the most amazing interviews in the film is this guy, Harry Steingart, who I found at the time, who was like 103 living in a nursing home, who was on a list that he could have been named by Julius. They were asked to name names in order to at least not get the death sentence. And they refused. 
And they actually said, I would rather die. They would rather die than do that. And I thought, well, that's a story that was gratifying for me to know, to understand, and made them real to me. Um, you know, I'd, I'd heard about it, like, oh, they don't, you know, they're not going to sell out people. But to actually have the real people standing there with me, telling me these stories and bringing their own personality to those stories, because that's something I love as well, always complicates it and makes it much more but just richer. And as we'll get into later, always all against the tension of the boys and yeah. leaving them without parents. Right? Absolutely. So I had to be willing to challenge them. They're not here anymore. But the idea of it better, you better have had a damn good reason. Mm. <laughs> and it wouldn't have been enough in my mind the answer being like, well, they're just not going to say you know, that they did anything because they have to stand up to the government. There better be a better reason than that that you're that they were willing to leave my father, and my uncle. That I right. wanted to and know. I wanted to know that. The following is part of a statement just issued by the president of the United States. By immeasurably increasing the chances of atomic war, the Rosenbergs may have condemned to death tens of millions of innocent people all over the world. I will not intervene in this matter. Okay, so let's pause there and just sure. move to Indian Point and why you made that particular film. Sure. I moved with my husband and my son, who was quite young at the time, out of the city to the Hudson Valley um, to a, a small town called Cold Spring, and it's not far from Indian Point. And I was taking the train in and out of the city for work, and I would go by this plant, and it was this kind of fascinating just the way it looked, so foreboding. And I'd heard about Indian Point. And I thought, God, this is really close to New York City. <laughs> and living in the city, never thought twice about it. That there was a nuclear There's plant. a nuclear plant right up the river. 35 miles. 35 yeah, miles yeah, from yeah. Times Square. And I'm just a naturally curious person. I'm like, what? what is this place? And it's funny now. I mean, in retrospect, I think... How strange that my grandparents are accused of stealing the secret of the atom bomb and then yeah, you know, nuclear power comes out of this. And there was really no connection. Who knows how the unconscious was working? Well, right exactly. Now. That's what I wonder. But what I set out to do, and this also speaks to your, you know, the, the idea that I don't I don't want to tell an audience how to feel about something. I want multiple points of view mm -hmm. and I want to present them mm -hmm. all in a way that allows each of them to tell their own stories without me imposing something on them. So I I set out to get access to the plant. I was like, ah, I can get those get the activists easily. <laughs> they they'll be happy to talk to me. But what really challenging, get inside that plant. All round bottom lights are lit, all rods less than 20 steps, decreasing neutron flux, reactor is tripped. Reactor is tripped. That's correct. Verified turbine trip. And how did you make that happen? <laughs> how did you get inside? Oh, gosh. Um, it's an interesting how it first started. So there's an activist who's still alive. She's in her 90s, a wonderful woman named Connie Hogarth. She's an anti-nuclear activist who lives not far from me. She knows everyone. And this is so funny how these things happen. It's like she actually has this kind of friendly relationship at the time with this guy, Jim Steets, who was head of uh, communications for Entergy for Indian, for, at Indian Point. 
because she would go to these protests and he would be Entergy there. Entergy was and, the company that, that operated there. Right? Yes, exactly. So Entergy is based in New Orleans, um, but they own they own Indian Point. Jim Steets is an employee, but he's a communications guy. He's like a PR guy. And so he and Connie have this kind of friendly, combative, it's almost like, you know, it's like a, a Republican senator being friendly with a Democratic senator. You know, they 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 would they have this friendly um, adversarial relationship. So I I called her and said I'm thinking about doing trying to do a film about Indian Point. As I was thinking about doing this film, Fukushima happened. Okay, so amazing. Fukushima happens, Crazy. and then I'm like I got to do this because we have this nuclear power plant even closer to the major metropolitan area than than Fukushima was to Tokyo. How scary is this? And sits on a fault line and all of that. So anyway, I hear that the NRC chairman, Greg Yatsko, is going to be speaking a little bit about Fukushima. He's going to be this there. This is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Sorry, NRC, yes, yes. Exactly. And I'm like, I got to get in there, but I don't have a press pass. I don't have anything. I have my little still have my little dinky camera. Anyway, I call Connie. I say, how do I get into this thing? She calls Jim Steets on my behalf and says, I have a lovely young woman here who's a family friend, and she's just she's an honest person, and she's just interested in possibly covering this. And he got me a press pass. So that's how it started. I went. I stood there. I, I captured a little bit of some of the activists. I started to lay eyes on some of these activists and I eventually found Marilyn Ellie who she and Roger become major characters in the film and she's a big leader in the anti-Indian point movement Right. and I see Con- the, the sorry the commissioner of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission Greg who becomes a character later too they're all there and I meet Jim Steets who also becomes a character and I and I have a friendly exchange with him and it's that's how it begins I mean it's just it's it's trust and it's it's I'm open you know I say and so when I started really pushing Jim and meeting with him again I kept saying I really want to come in and film inside the plant he's like well okay we'll give you the tour we'll get you know I'm like I don't want the regular tour I want I want to go beyond the tour and I and he's well what are you really looking for I said you know I'd actually love to meet someone who works there and maybe, and that's how I ended up meeting Brian. And I, what I said to them, and how I convinced them, at the start, and once I had access to Brian, all doors open. Everybody loves Brian Vangor there. And for listeners, he is, he was the senior control room operator at the time mm-hmm. at Indian Point. He'd been there for like thirty-five years. Very lovely person. Very well respected. Very serious. Good at his job. Someone you want to be in charge of the control room at Indian Point. Um, Reassuring. But what I said to them is I said, there's lots of films out there that focus on the activists that are trying to shut down nuclear power plants. We've seen that story. No one ever gets to see you. No one ever gets to see you who work in the plant, who are just doing your job, who also care about safety, by the way. And no, right. I mean, they're, it's not like they're in there, you know, being reckless. They're not Homer Simpson with their feet up on the on the control right. room panel <laughs> board. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was persuasive. But you were also you were also honest to your commitment because that's what you do. Yes. They are credible. They are human. They are real. Yes. And you don't cartoon them. Right. And you create, again, that tension. That's between right. Between the genuine fear of the community and of the activists and the genuine commitment, on the other hand, and the kind of home, I mean, that whole Thanksgiving scene is so interesting, too. I mean, it's just that that was a kind of home to them. Yes. All right. 
Well, another Thanksgiving here at Indian Point. Plants at 100% steady state. Uh, we do have a 22-pound turkey in the oven, so we're all uh, pretty excited about that. It kind of epitomized That's right. the seriousness with which they took that place, even with all the risks and all the issues that hover around it in your study of it. But it just, again, it, it doesn't resolve the tension, and that's its power to me. Yeah, I hoped that that's what we would achieve. I mean, I really felt, and also to have Brian Vangor be the one telling us, I have to be very careful. This is, I mean, that to understand what their jobs are, to me, is actually scarier to hear than, than an activist telling us how dangerous this plant is. Because what you start to understand is that their job is about containing this thing and making sure that nothing bad happens. All we're trying to do is make steam to generate electricity. And in this case, we use a nuclear reactor to do it. It's where our fuel is located, where the fission process happens. It's where the magic happens. So once you understand that, you don't need to be hammering home, you know, this is, you know, oh, my God, this is so scary and the alarmist, you know, material. I can be I can respect what they do and show them in a respectful way and still get across a message that I feel is valid, which is maybe we don't need to be um, utilizing this form of energy and so close to a big city, first of all. But um, is it such a good idea to take this risk? Right. Right. Sometimes you, you meet somebody new and it's like, hey, where do you work? Sometimes you just say, hey, I work, you know, at a electricity factory. I don't know, not necessarily, you know, how they make that electricity. My buddy said, tell them you pick grapes. Tell them anything but that. Don't tell them you work there. You know, so. All right, well, let's move on to your uh, the bully coward victim that just opened. Talk about exploring something that's... <laughs> That must have been a challenge to understand the ambiguity of that situation. Why don't you describe your film and just talk about it a little bit? Sure. Um, So, yeah, my most recent film is called Bully, Coward, Victim, The Story of Roy Cohn. And and it's about Roy Cohn, who was, among other things, um, he's uh, really launched his career as the assistant prosecutor in my grandparents' trial um, when he was only 23 years old. And... He went on to become Joe McCarthy's right-hand man, famously McCarthyism. Mr. Jenkins, anyone who has followed the communist conspiracy, even remotely, will tell you that there is no remote possibility of this war which we're in today ending except by victory or by death I mean, for this he was one of the architects of the Red Scare, and then went on to become Donald Trump's lawyer. But he was also gay, closeted, and he died of AIDS in 1986. He is also the subject of the marvelous play that Tony Kushner wrote called Angels in America. And I, you know, I've known the name Roy Cohn since I was a kid. I didn't know much about him. Um, I really kind of always focused as a kid my ire on um the judge, for some reason, I always fixated on Judge Kaufman. Irving Kaufman. Yeah, um, that he's the one who sent my grandparents away. I, you know, I didn't know much about. It. And then in 1988, when I was in college, my dad and I were in Washington D.C. and we went to visit the AIDS Memorial Quilt, which was tens of thousands of panels 
spread out across the mall. And the first panel that we stumbled upon was Roy Cohn's. And, and it just was a shocking, incredible moment because I didn't know he was gay or that he had died of AIDS. You knew him as a villain in the yes. story of your grandparents. That's right. And that's there right. you are in this huge acres of this quilt. And yep. that's the one you see first. Exactly. It was so, I mean, really chilling. And both my father and wow. I still believe it's a, some kind of sign that we needed to know this because my father hadn't really followed him either and didn't know many people in New York knew he was gay. But I don't think my father kind of followed that story. So he didn't know either. And I thought we both had this moment of feeling like, well, at least I did at first. Well, good. He deserved, well, he deserved it. And then I thought, oh, God, the, the poor guy. Mm. Because they were there, you know, it's it's very powerful moving exhibit near there grieving all these people who died horrible and early deaths and um but i did it made me really interested in him and that stuck with me and for a handful of years i've thought about making a film about him and partly because i've always thought he was fascinating and and i couldn't understand why nobody else had done this and but i kept thinking you know somebody else can do that somebody else can do it because it's going to require me to revisit my family story again which i'd done in air to an execution i didn't relish right. revisiting right. again but here then donald trump was elected and i thought this is i have to do this now this is my way of contributing to the dialogue around donald trump understanding where he came from using cone that way but also understanding what happens to somebody like him? And I, I really, I really believe that he was a tortured soul, and I, um, I actively tried to pursue empathy for him because that's where the story is, right? Right, and that's also where the ambiguity is. I mean, right. it's one thing to pursue the bully piece, which you do, but the coward piece gets us a little closer, and of course, the victim piece opens that up. That's right. And let's spend a minute on what Cohn did with David Greenglass. Sure. And his significance in your grandparents' fate. Yes. So David Greenglass was my grandmother's younger brother. They were very close. Um, so Ethel Greenglass became Ethel Rosenberg when she married Julius. David Greenglass was actually arrested first in this so-called spy ring, and he had worked at Los Alamos, and he was accused of trying to steal uh, material that could lead to the the building of the of the atom bomb, which is where they were developing it at Los Alamos. So, but he was a low-level machinist, so there's kind of, you know, there are a lot of questions, did he, could he even have access to that? But that's neither here nor there. He was arrested, terrified. They brought in his wife, Ruth. They had two young children. They basically um, were, they were the ones who were being targeted at that point. And then um, Julius is arrested. Ethel is arrested. Cone, at some point along the way, as the assistant prosecutor, coaches David Greenglass in his testimony to say that he remembered that Ethel did the typing. They didn't have anything on Ethel. They had brought her in initially because they thought they would get her to break Julius, that bringing her in would be so awful to him that he would say, okay, okay, I will name names, yes, and please let my wife go home to our children. Didn't happen. The two of them together were stronger than separate. And I mean, that, that's um, part of the story I tell right. in Aired on Execution as well. But Cohn is really, you know, and during this time also he's committing ex parte, you know, he's doing ex parte communication, which is, you know, not allowed. I mean, he's talking with the judge. He's calling the judge from pay phones around the corner from the courthouse. Kaufman was not 
comfortable with sentencing my grandmother to death. And Cohn said, you have to do it. You have mm. to send, you know, you really, we need to send a message. Um, mm. And, you know, so that's, that's just in a nutshell, David Greenglass's role, you know, and now I've kind of come to the point where, you know, the real villain is Cohn. I grew up thinking Greenglass was the worst, the worst, and, and he's pretty bad, but he's also, he's a victim too. But even the way you told the story, he was terrified. Yes, yes. Yeah. Of yeah. course, yeah. Some level of compassion. Right, or... right. Now, what would you like to do? Yell at him to his face? Well, I would like to talk to him and make him confess. Well, I mean, confess to what? I mean, he's already confessed. On 60 Minutes, you saw him confess. Yeah, but in such a... I guess I, I would want him to confess and show remorse. Well, you can't make him show remorse. However horrible it was, I guess, is, um, I just want to put aside for a second just to also understand, again, it's not just black or white. There is a gray zone there. That's right. There is a gray zone because... He actually has admitted it. You know, he said, "My, you know, I, it was like my wife or my sister." And he and he said crassly at one point, and he's quoted as saying, "Like I don't sleep with my sister." Hmm. Yeah. You know, so this is his way hmm. of saying that. You know, I had to choose. He had to choose his family over his sister. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as awful as that sounds to all of us, who who are we to say what we would do in that situation? It's just unfathomable. And I used to try to imagine that. Even when I was younger, I would always try to imagine, even when I thought my grandparents were just purely innocent, I would think, God, would I be strong enough to actually say, okay, kill me. I'd rather die than give you names or admit that I'd done anything. Or both, or if you have to admit, and I, you know, who, who among us know what we would do? For half a century now, he's known that his false testimony cost his sister her life. How do you think history will remember you? Uh, as a spy that turned his family in. Do you care? Not particularly. I don't care. There are moments in Erdogan execution that are so human and so touching. For whatever reason, the story. I can't remember who tells it about your grandparents in the police van and it's dark and somebody lights a cigarette and they see each other yeah and they kiss mhm yeah because there's this love story about your grandparents that yes. that weaves its way through too that's so beautiful yeah it's really true that was Miriam Moskowitz who was actually in the jail in um Manhattan where she was held briefly with Ethel and she tells that story of seeing them. They were really, really in love. And the way they wrote letters to each other, um, they're just really, really, it's very powerful. And so I think Cohn didn't know what he was getting into or the government didn't know what they were getting into when they tried to use her to break him because they were really united. And we have uh, right. Abe Osheroff, the, uh, who's in the film as well. Yeah. And he said, yeah. he pinpoints it, and I had never really thought about it that way, that he said they, they were so, they were comrades in the truest sense of the word, is how he put it. Yeah, right, right. And that was, that was such a strong part of their bonding, too. Yes. But in a way, I mean, it becomes a story about this unpenetrable love that existed yeah. between them, even when it came to this you know, a kind of life or death call Absolutely. with all its ramifications. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. we don't really get into it in the film, but I, you know, I've thought about it more since that 
you know, I mean, Ethel especially, she was basically in solitary confinement for a good two years. And, mm. you know, there's no other women on death row. And she mm. was just alone, alone. What does that do? I mean, it, and I mean, obviously with her, it made her even more uh, determined to stand up to them. Right. And, and what comes through her letters to the boys and that final kind of poetic mm. moment she has. Mm-hmm. My sweet Michael boy, I have just had my dinner and feel like having a little visit with you. Yesterday I went to court and there I saw your dear daddy. And what do you think we spoke of? You and Robbie, of course. And of how much we miss you and what we can do. And what we can do to um, keep you both happy and healthy. She strikes me as an incredibly smart. Yeah insightful. I mean, she seems kind of brilliant. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, after making the film, I kind of had this feeling that, especially, you know, how I have my father saying at the end, you know, what would our lives have been if Julius had been another David Greenglass and Ethel had been another Ruth Greenglass, who meaning, you know, name names and get get out. And he said, I wouldn't want that kind of life. So that made me feel like that, yes, maybe she was so smart and so prescient that she believed she was giving them a gift. I buy it. It feels that way to me. I mean, the way your dad puts it at the end, after the question is raised about, you know, how could she let those boys become orphans? Right, right. How could she? And then your dad opens up a different point of view. That's right. That's right. And if you read the letters and you understand where they were coming from, that they might have unconsciously or not known that she was giving them a gift of pride and, I don't know, some kind of bravery. So you're talking about discovering these letters. Yeah, well, they were little scraps of paper on which Ethel had scrawled little messages, minutes before her death, and I remember there was one of them in particular, and it said, I cry for myself as I lie dead, for shall they know all that burned my brain and breast. Here's where, for me, like, this is so monumental that it takes kind of the ambiguity of human experience to a whole different level, almost like a, I feel like I want to compare it to Greek tragedy or something like that, you know, like, it's that... Monumental. It's in Sophocles' Oedipus, right? That play isn't about the fact that he slept with his mother and murdered his father. Sophocles makes that play about his unswerving will to pursue the truth Mm. and that he would stop at nothing until he knew the truth. Right, right. And then when he knows the truth, talk about the ambiguity of human experience, the horror of knowing what he did. Right but also the horror of not knowing what he did and then culminating in and stabbing his eyes out and the blindness and losing one form of sight as he gains because, another right. and sees his truth. Yeah, Right. yes. And here you have your grandparents. I mean, I realize this is lofty, but that's what it strikes me is that monumental of needing to make that choice between mm-hmm. their truth, their yeah. love, mm-hmm. and the boys. Yes. And orphaning them and what would happen. Right. Right. And that question can never be answered. It just needs to be there as this very profound articulation of human experience that can't be reconciled. That's right. And I think, you know, I I understand that for some people want 
those answers, right? They want mm-hmm. it wrapped up, and that can be frustrating for some people. But I think it's so much more interesting and challenging and dr- more dramatic to and true, embrace way, it I and think. true because, like we were yeah. like we're talking about, there is no one way of being or seeing, and that, and the truth, you know, is their truth was that they believed in what they were doing and they weren't going to bring other people down because they believed in what they had done, whether it was, you know, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's muddy whether Ethel, how much she knew, but I think they were so close. She had to have known. I mean, I, that's my personal belief. They were comrades and they believed that they were doing the right thing. And I, you know, it's, there's power in that, even if you don't agree with what they did. Absolutely. So as if these aren't big enough issues here, <laughs> I have a couple of other big questions sure. for you. And just to tell you, like, interestingly, on a tiny level compared to what happened to your grandparents, this stirred some stuff for me personally mm. in terms of a couple of stories about my own grandparents and my own grandfathers in particular and some of my own parents' response to those stories, etc. And it, it got me wondering about the perspective of subsequent generations and how we are maybe called on or given the opportunity, if not actually called, to open a different point of view, Mm. not to contradict, but to tell maybe another element of the story or to, I mean, for you to be able to talk about Roy Cohn as a victim is something Obviously, and your dad says this, he could never do. Yes, that's right. Or David Greenglass, for that matter. That's right. Or ask the kind of questions I ask in Airdrome Execution. I would never, ever expect, nor should anybody expect, my father to be the one to be asking the questions, Was it worth? what was worth dying for? I'm sure he's grappled with that stuff, but that's his private struggle, if he even has that. But to me, I am one step removed I can do that. I can be the one asking those questions on behalf of all of us, on behalf of them, on behalf of my father. I will take that on. And do you feel called to do that? Yeah, I do. You do? Yeah. I felt the Airdrome Execution was, I felt compelled to make that film. It was pretty agonizing at times, especially when I could not get some of the family to talk to me and you see me you know kind of calling and being upset and frustrated and there's way more than than we even put in there i thought for a while wow what do i have i need to know these stories and then then i thought actually them not being comfortable talking to me is the is the story but there are many steps along the way where i was upset i was i would you know cry it was cathartic in the truest sense of the word because you mm. go through it, it's painful. I came out the other side. I felt at mm-hmm. more at peace with that story than I ever had in my entire life. And I'd mm-hmm. been thinking about it since I was five years old. Right. Yeah, thinking about the electric chair, thinking about horror, thinking about you know yeah. my father being orphaned, you know all of it. So that's why, as I said before, it was hard for me to go back to the story and use it in the Cone film. But I needed to. I needed to again. I felt it was it was important. It was urgent, and I could contribute Absolutely, yeah. something that nobody else could. And when you have something like that, and you also happen to enjoy, I I feel strongly. I am a storyteller. I want I like to I want to communicate things to the world. I had to do it. You know this one scene that makes me weep in Sunnyvale, California. You know yeah. when you're talking to your cousin, uh, and. Uh, he begins to apologize 
about the boys being orphaned and nobody taking them in the family. And you say, well, what do you have to apologize for? And his profound response, who's left to apologize? Look, especially looking back on it, this was eating her up inside. Yeah. But I do feel a sense of, of somewhat shame for my mother's behavior, not adopting um, your, your uh, father and your uncle. It's like, I'm the one who should apologize. Why? You shouldn't have. There's no reason well, you who's should. Who's left to apologize? <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> It's true. But yeah, also he, healing. It was healing. His care and his words. And I was that was a question I had for you. Is the arc of this work for you? Is it, you know, that you can as a granddaughter, as a generation removed to expand on the story, does it allow for a kind of healing? It's never gonna be fully healed, I don't mean that. Right. But does it take you a little further on the arc of that? Um Yeah, sorry. Uh yeah, he Absolutely. I mean, that was that was a really powerful moment for me. And, you know, he became and he, my father had never met him. You know, mm -hmm. we didn't know them at all. And so now they are friends and family and they keep in touch. It was remarkable because, yeah, he he was so upset that his that his parents hadn't taken in, taken them in, that he felt the, the burden of that. And I did. I found that very powerful that when he said who's left to apologize but it, it also speaks to this next generation of something that can happen. I don't know. Yes. We can move know. beyond we can move beyond it and or talk about it in a different way or hear each other in a different way or connect yes. with each other in a different way. Something else. Right. 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 And in the process, are you closer to your dad? Are you closer to your grandparents? Are you connected with them in a different way? Well, it's it's interesting because it definitely brought me closer to my father. But in a way, it allowed me to let go of my grandparents. I don't necessarily feel closer to them. I feel like I understand them more, but in a way that allowed me to not like, really be haunted. I don't, I don't feel haunted by them anymore. I feel at kind of at peace with who they were mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and what they did. And I don't feel, I don't have that kind of agonizing like anger you know, on my father's behalf. Because I always, I think I always, as a kid, felt very protective of my father in this very instinctual sure. way. So once I understood that, and and that was coming from a place of being, like, pretty ticked off at them, starting to be like, you know what, wait a minute, you re really, was that more important than, than my dad? It was always through him that I saw the story. So I think for me, now I'm at peace with them, and I'm closer to my dad. Well, Ivy, I, I have to say I, I hope every Art Center student and alum listens to this conversation and can <laughs> learn from your wisdom, from your strength in being vulnerable, from your willingness to ask these big questions and, and just let it hover, let it be. Don't fix it. Because right. that's what our experience is as human beings, I think, and it's such a gift that you give this. Thank you. And thank you for the gift of this conversation, too. I'm really grateful to you. Thank you so much. I really, it was a great pleasure. I haven't had such a deep conversation about my work, I don't think ever. So thank you. Change Lab is produced and recorded at Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, 
co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Oland.